0: All right, everyone. This is Nick Olick and Whitney Lane. We are Duke Plastic Surgery residents with the Resident Review, and uh, we are bringing back our Flapcast series today. How's it going, Whitney?
1: It's going great, Nick. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. It's been uh, it's been getting really nice here in Durham. I think this is like the time of year where, you know, living in the South really pays dividends. It's been like sunny and 60 for the past week. We just got out of, or just got back into daylight savings time. It's actually light when I leave the hospital. So some big wins.
1: I know serious wins. I just went to the Duke gardens today and the cherry blossoms were all in bloom. It was unbelievable. I was like, I'm now ready for spring.
0: Yes, exactly. And, uh, you know, both Whitney and I are both big runners. Um, so you, know, you recently did a, a, a nice race, not in Durham. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. So I was up in New York, um, ran the New York city half. It was beautiful that day as well in New York. It was basically <laughs> a perfect running day. Um, we're both hoping to repeat my amazing race in New York down here in Chapel Hill in a couple of weeks. We're both running the Tar Hill 10 miler. Um, I've run it before. Nick has not, he is not aware that this is the hilliest running course of all time, but yeah, soon I will be.
0: Of, I kind of signed up before I knew that. And then it was, <laughs> <ages>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um,
1: it's a fun race though.
0: I think we both definitely need to sport some Duke gear too. Cause we're kind of like going behind enemy lines.
1: Oh, for sure. Yes. We for sure need Duke gear for this. Yeah.
0: So yeah, things have been good. Um, I think some other, some other big news here, um, for Duke plastic surgery, we're just passing match day here and we are super excited with our match. Um, we have three, uh, great interns coming in, all of which who rotated with us and we're so psyched. I know you got to interview everybody. Um, you know, I was less involved with the interview process, but I got to meet all three of these uh, applicants. So I'm so excited.
1: Yeah. We're thrilled. Um, can't wait for next year. Um, Other big happenings at Duke that I would be totally remiss to not mention is the fact that the Duke basketball team is now in the final four. Um, So by the time this posts, hopefully, cross your fingers, we will be national champions. Um, But we'll see. Maybe I'm jinxing us. I have faith. I have faith too.
0: Um, All right. So before we jump in, um, do you have any interesting cases that you're involved with on service or anything cool happening uh, on rotations right now?
1: Yeah, totally. I, um, a couple of weeks ago, I actually did a pretty awesome case. This, uh, patient had a bad trauma, had a, um, really difficult wound, um, with really no, uh, no targets that we could use for free flap, um, inset. So we did a huge vein graft from up in the thoracodorsals, kind of swung it down into the hip area and then delayed a, uh, free latissimus flap. And the patient was actually able to get out of the hospital. So that was totally awesome. Awesome case. Awesome outcome for the patient. Um, went, that, ended up going really well.
0: That is awesome. I, I was talking to uh, you know, a couple of the the residents on service. I was up in the ICU at the time on a off-service rotation. And it was so cool to hear about that kind of every step. I know we first did like an AV loop and then, you know, waited for it to mature. And it was awesome to see that work out and, and the patient did really well. So it's exciting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Anything uh, exciting on your end? I know you've been on trauma.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm on trauma right now. It's, it's, been, it's been really crazy. I mean, I've, I've been learning a lot. I'm really busy trauma center here. I think the, probably the craziest thing that I saw was last week we had an ED thoracotomy, and it was incredible. The patient had penetrating trauma. We cross-planted the aorta. We were able to get them up to the operating room. Um, and it was definitely wild to see. I mean, it was also just, just cool to see how well the trauma team worked and how well the system functioned and everyone was so you know professional and, and structured and organized. And, and it was just an awesome experience.
1: I mean, there are cool parts of general surgery. Plastics <laughs> is better, but there are cool parts of general surgery.
0: It's true. righty. So uh, I think kind of Moving into the, the meat of our discussion here, we're kind of starting our season two, if you will, of the Flapcast, and we want to go into a little bit deeper discussion of uh, the kind of the basics of the flap and some of the anatomy to help frame our discussion uh, when we talk to our attendings. Um, so do you want to kind of get us started with a little introduction, Winnie?
1: Yeah. So today we're actually going to be talking about the reverse Searle Flap. Um, I joked that this has become my go-to favorite flap for the distal third of the leg, uh, mainly just because I think I've done the most reverse sterile flaps in the residency in the last mm-hmm. year and a half. So this flap is great. It's a thin fasciocutaneous cutaneous flap that occupies the space on the posterior leg, overlying the gastroc buffet. it kind of sits between the popliteal fossa and the mid portion of the leg. Uh, the biggest thing about it is that it's considered a reverse flow flap, um, and there's a pretty big amount of debate and discussion in the literature about um, the actual true anatomy and blood flow of the flap, which we'll get into a little bit later. Uh, the big thing is that it's commonly used for defects of the distal third of the leg, and can be an alternative, a good alternative to free flaps in this setting, especially when the patient is not really a candidate for a free flap. So, uh, Nick, let's review some of the basics of the anatomy and Uh, design of this flap?
0: Yeah, let's do it. So I think in kind of big picture, 10,000 foot view, uh, the anatomy of the the lower extremity, we think about our compartments of the lower leg, and we have our anterior compartment, our lateral compartment, and our deep and superficial posterior compartments. Um, For this flap, we've been thinking mostly about the superficial posterior compartment with our gastrox, soleus, and plantaris. Um, Important neurovascular structures to the flap are our lesser saphenous vein and our sural nerve. And we think about where these are located at different areas of the leg, down at the ankle. uh, These are gonna be running between the Achilles tendon and the lateral malleolus. And then as we ascend proximally, they're gonna become more central in the posterior leg and run along the medial raffae of the gastroc. Then when we get about uh, to the proximal third of the leg, these structures are gonna dive deep to the muscular fascia. Uh, Another structure that's very important to this flap is the perineal artery. Um, And this runs within the deep posterior compartment, and perforators from this vessel are what supply um, our reverse seral flap. And very importantly, the perforators that supply this flap are typically located about five to seven centimeters proximal to lateral malleolus. So let's dig in a little bit deeper to the uh, reverse serial flap anatomy itself.
1: So, um, this is again, like I said, a fasciocutaneous cutaneous flap of the posterior leg, as Nick has pointed out, it overlies the gastrocrophy. So the blood supply, this is where everyone gets into a debate about what the actual blood supply to this flap is in general. And most people agree that it is a reverse flow flap that is supplied in general by the perineal. Some people report it's supplied by the uh, PT artery, but if you're taking the in- plastic surgery in-service exam, it is the perineal artery. Um, that is the correct answer to their question. Uh, so the axis of the flap is designed along the gastroecrophy, the lesser saphenous, uh, vein and the sural nerve run along this axis and are clipped and included within the flap. Uh, the rotation point is at the lateral malleolus, about five to seven centimeters proximal to the lateral mouth. Uh, the blood supply again can there is some discussion as to the fact that it comes from the neurocutaneous perforators from the sural nerve. So, it is important that you include the sural nerve in your flap. Um, as far as the venous drainage goes, it's thought to be through the subdermal plexus uh, and the fasciocutaneous pedicle of this flap. Um, well, although you do include the lesser saphenous vein in your flap design, the lesser saphenous vein has valves, and you'd have to be, there'd have to be obviously like reverse flow out that vein to drain the flap. Um, so this is probably not the primary drainage source for this flap. It's mainly through the subdermal plexus.
0: There's, there's such debate in the the literature on this. And I'm interested to hear what Dr. Levinson has to say about it because I, I feel like each author that I've read these different papers on um, have their own opinion. So I'm interested to hear what he says.
1: I know. And it's, it's interesting to study for this flap or uh, study for it from a specifically in-service perspective, because um, some papers say that it's a, through the neurocutaneous perforators from the sterile nerve that's supplied by the perineal artery. Some people say that that's supplied by the posterior tibial artery. It, it's, it's kind of all over the map. So I'm mm-hmm. surprised that we're able to answer, or they're asking us a, a question about the blood supply to the flap because obviously there's no, um, one right answer it seems. Yep.
0: Exactly. Um, all right, so let's go into a little bit of the, the complications that we see with the reverse sural, um, and the most common complication would be venous congestion. And this can lead to obviously partial or complete flap loss. Um, again, the venous drainage of the flap, there's again, some debate about that. There's venous drainage through the adipofascial pedicle, um, through the VCs that run with those perineal artery perforators, which are supplying our flap. And again, there's also that possible contribution from our superfascial venous network of the lesser saphenous and the sural nerve itself. Uh, but in general, this flap is known to have poor venous outflow. In addition, we're taking a flap from the proximal third of the leg to cover a distal third defect. So, obviously, that uh, requires almost a 180 degree turn. So, we are kinking our vessels, um, and that predisposes us to congestion as well. And how we can manage this um, a couple of different ways. First, the best way would be to avoid it altogether. And some people have attempted to do this with modifications like delay procedures. Um, using an interpolated flap, uh, you know, meaning leaving a uh, skin bridge, essentially doing this as a two stage flap and going back and dividing that skin bridge at a later date. That's one way Um, people have added large adipofascial extensions to their pedicle. So making a really, really wide pedicle to increase the drainage through that structure. You know, sometimes we do all these things. Sometimes we don't, and we still end up with venous congestion. So what do you do And commonly, um, we will use leeches. This is certainly where I've seen leeches used most frequently in my training so far. Uh, So that's usually our first option. Other kind of fancier options that you can try in the operating room are supercharging your lesser saphenous vein to a vein in the uh, recipient site, kind of if you could find a local venous branch there. You can also do venous cannulation at bedside to leave your incision partially open um, when you insert the flap. And actually, cannulate that uh, lesser saphenous vein at the bedside to allow some additional venous drainage. So there's a lot of options. People try a lot of different things. Um, and again, I think this will be something interesting to talk about with our our uh, faculty, Dr. Levinson. Uh, I so- can guess
1: what he's gonna say. <laughs> he always tells you, because I've done a bunch of cases with him, that you plan for leeches in a reverse sorrel flap. Yep. He's like, if you don't need leeches, it's a miracle. You just plan for them.
0: Yeah, that's that's a spoiler alert. Yeah. So uh, before we wrap up, let's look at two quick questions from our prior in-service exams and see what our test writers like to ask about this flap.
1: Uh, So our first in-service question is a 35-year-old man is referred to the office after undergoing prolonged failed attempts at local wound care of an exposed Achilles tendon. Physical examination shows that the tendon is beginning to desiccate. Coverage with a flap is performed as shown. Obviously, they show a reverse oral flap the blood supply to this flap is derived from which of the following arteries? The uh, answer choices are A, anterior tibial, B, geniculate, C, perineal, D, popliteal, and E, superficial femoral. And the answer to this question is the perineal artery. So again, going back to that complicated blood supply for this flap where no one really agrees on it, in general for the in-service examination, if they're asking you about the blood supply to the flap, it's going to be from the perineal artery.
0: All right, and last one. Uh, A 17 year old boy sustains an avulsion injury to the anterior ankle with exposed tendon in a motorcycle collision. The wound is evaluated and reconstruction with a reverse sural artery flap is planned. During elevation of the flap, which of the following is most likely to compromise flap viability? A injury to the lesser saphenous vein, B injury to the median superficial sural artery, C injury to the sural nerve, D ligation of the gastrocnemius muscle perforators, or E Ligation of the perineal artery perforators, and the answer here would be E, ligation of the perineal artery perforators. Uh, you know, very similar to our question above, but I think this uh, kind of highlights with the additional answer choices. Um, I think it was kind of trying to trip us up, where they ask us, you know, the lesser saphenous vein and the sural uh, nerve, obviously both included in our flap, uh, but the predominant blood supply is thought to be these perineal artery perforators. So it's important when you're marking out this flap that you identify where that pivot point is, where those perforators are coming through, um, because that will be the distal extent of your dissection. If you go any further, you're devascularizing your flap, essentially. Um, so similar questions. I think they actually like to ask about this flap a lot on the in-service.
1: Yeah, totally agree. It seems to be at least one question every year.
0: All righty. And uh, now we'll, we'll get ready to bring in Dr. Lovison for a more in-depth discussion.
1: So uh, after now that we've reviewed the background and the anatomy of the reverse oral flap, we are now joined by our very own Dr. Howard Levinson. Uh, Dr. Levinson completed his residency in general surgery at Brookdale University Hospital Medical Center in New York. During that time, he did wound healing research fellowships at both NYU and Hershey Medical Center. He then went on to complete his plastic surgery training here at Duke, where he is now an associate professor of surgery a leader and innovator in the field of abdominal wall reconstruction, the board vice president of research for ASPS, and the president-elect of the Plastic Surgery Foundation. Dr. Levinson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. So uh, getting into some discussion about the reverse serial, um, I think just starting out, uh, what are your general thoughts on the flap, Dr. Levinson? How often is this something that you use, and what do you think are some of the advantages and disadvantages of the reverse CERL flap?
2: Boy, Nick, you really hit me with a lot of questions there. All at
0: once.
2: <laughs> um, maybe we could start with one at a time. So, um, let, what was the first question, please? So,
0: just kind of your general thoughts. Is this a flap that you, that you do frequently. Is this a, a flap that you enjoy doing? Kind of just your big picture uh, thoughts on the flap.
2: Uh, I think this is a great flap um, that's a good workhorse flap. Um, it can be used as your primary choice. For foot and ankle, you know, posterior foot, heel kind of um, work and ankle for sure, Um, posterior or anterior or lateral or medial, Um, or it can be secondary. So if you're a free flap micro person, you're going to want to use this as your secondary. If you're not a micro person for either for um, technical reasons, you know, ability, comfort, experience, and or um, institutional issues with where you're working and why. Um, what kind of environment you have set up for your success, is a variety of reasons, then then you may lean on this flap a bit more. Uh, There is no right or wrong, whether it's primary or secondary. There's always pros and cons with anything. To me, the key is getting the wound coverage or bringing the soft tissue down the bulk that you want. That's the most important thing far and away, whether it's this flap or a free flap. Most people would traditionally say that the distal third of the tibia or the, the heel area of the ankle is really free flop territory. And that's true, but this can serve as primary. Okay, And I've used it many times as both secondary as a backup to micro, and even more recently, um, I've been using it for primary uses.
1: Do you think, um, so I know that you, I've done several of these cases with you and I know that you like to rely on, you you sometimes do use this case, this flap as a primary flap for coverage of the um, lower extremity. Do you think that there are any true contraindications to the use of this flap other than kind of the obvious, like the perineal artery being out?
2: Um, well, so perineal artery being out is not necessarily contraindication because this is also supplied by the posterior tip. And, and truly, it's a, what, what they call like a neurovascular flap, if you look at the literature, where it's the artery going um, with the sural nerve that's going in a retrograde fashion that, you know, um, some people believe are what's actually supplying the flap. And so I wouldn't even say that a, a perineal artery or a posterior tibial artery being out necessarily is a contraindication. I I think if you have a problem and you don't want to do a free flap or you just you know want to choose this as your first, there's a lot of reasons you can try this. This this is very reasonable for a lot of cases uh, to use. I can't think of a real strong contraindication to using it. I mean, clearly if you had, a cut across the whole posterior part of your leg, in the distal third, that was above, proximal to the five centimeters above the ankle, that went through the flap. Then yes, that's like a C-section that would go through the, you know, the inferior epigastric arteries, right? Like you know, a Fanning steel incision. That's a clear contraindication. Other than that, I don't, I don't know that I think there really is a contraindication, and and in fact. Having done a lot of microsurgery for lower extremity, um, when traditionally, what I used to do was if the patient was at a good free flap candidate, and there's a variety of reasons for it, they're very sick, um, they're not very compliant, um, they may have poor uh, vasculature in the lower leg, things of that nature, this is a great choice. So you're actually using it when there's not good blood flow and when people are, are not good getting diabetes or atherosclerotic disease or things of that nature. That's when we've used it. Uh, you know, now I kind of said to myself, well, it takes me, you know, three to four hours to do a free flap down there, but it takes me 45 minutes to do this flap. Wait, why am I doing a free flap again? And why don't I just, you know, in the donor sites, these free flaps are, are real. Radioform, for example, is kind of the more common one. That's not insignificant on a forearm after you've treated enough patients. For they get wrist stiffness and they're unsightly defects. And I got to tell you, like getting a defect on the part of my calf posteriorly versus my forearm, I'd rather take a calf defect, you know, with a skin graft than on my forearm, number one. Number two is a stiff wrist is worse than a little scar on the back of your calf. And, and that's a real thing, too. And number three, it's a lot less stressful as a surgeon. Like, you know, we, I know microsurgery, people don't want to admit it, but it's stressful doing microsurgery. That's why we joke, but younger people do, younger surgeons do microsurgery and there are less older surgeons. They get away from doing microsurgery and that's because of the stress. And, and so putting a flap up there, the, the drawback in that flap is you have to worry about venous congestion. And that's what you have to work through. Um, so let me pause there for more questions before I just I can't go too far ahead.
0: No, I appreciate all of that. Um, you alluded to how there's kind of different opinions uh, in the literature about the anatomy in terms of arterial supply to the flap. And some people talk about a superficial sterile artery. Some people talk about it being a neurocutaneous flap. I, I was interested to see what you think about the, the venous drainage. So in my reading, you know, some people say that the lesser saphenous vein is not draining this flap. Um, some people include a, a cuff of gastroc around the lesser saphenous uh, to encourage drainage through that kind of mesentery there. I was wondering what you think of as the, the venous drainage here, and, and if you do any of those maneuvers to encourage drainage.
2: So two separate questions. So the first answer is I don't know what the drainage, drainage is, and it doesn't really matter, right? Because I'm not going to do a mechanistic study to find branches of the lesser saphenous or the deep perforators, the perineal or the posterior tip, right? Um, but I do know that there has to be venous drainage on uh, What th- There are two phases to this flap, sort of, when I think about blood flow to it. And I'll explain what I mean. Number one is in the OR. It doesn't turn purple right away, but it's pale. And what I always see, it, and I see it with my residents, we do the flap and they look at it and they get stressed out because they see it pale. And they're always worried there's no blood supply to it. And then I tell them to rub the edge of it. And every once in a while, you see a few capillaries bleeding. And then you feel better. And I tell them to stop pinpricking it and looking at it. It's going to be fine. So that's the first part is the arterial part. And in doing a number of these, I've never seen a flap turn pale and ischemic and die. Okay. So I've never seen it as arterial, nor is that what's reported in the literature. So then the next part is the venous part. And that's the turn in blue. You know, the veins make me blue. And, and so what happens, and this is what we talk about, I know Dr. Lane Whitney's on the phone with us, and we've done a number of these cases together, is it's 12 to 24 hours after you do the flap that it starts to turn purple, if it's going to turn purple. Now, oftentimes, it doesn't turn purple. And if it doesn't turn purple, you find out the next day, you send the patient home, and you're like, that was the easiest thing. I did 45 minutes. I did a flap. I solved the problem. The scar is minimal. And this thing is great. Like way easier than the free flap of keeping the leg elevated and worrying about the flap going down and the donor site and everything else, way easier. The drawback comes when it starts to turn purple. That's the dreaded fear, right? And so what do you do? Well, What do you do when anything turns purple, right? You go through your, your menu of plastic surgery options. Oh, we need to put a clamp on the saphenous vein and open up the clamps with bleeds, Right? Um, which I've tried, and that doesn't usually work well because there's a clot that forms in the vein, and then it doesn't really drain, and then it's a mess, and you got this microclamp sitting at the patient's bedside, and then it gets lost, and the nurses get upset, and the patients get upset, and it doesn't, it just, in my hand, has not worked great. Then you do um, microanathmosis and say it's going to do great, but that doesn't necessarily do great, and now you're back in the microsurgery game, right, which you were avoiding. But that can work, right? There's multiple options. So I don't want to say one way definite or another, but these are things to think about. The third way, which just seems to work for me are leeches. And the way you do that, the way I do that, that seems to work is you find the purple spot of the flap and you pinprick and you put a leech on and the leech starts to suck and it gets rid of the purple. Then the leech falls off and you leave it and the flap will free bleed and it'll be red again. And then when that bleeding stops, you put the leech, a new leech back on. So it's not every two hours or four hours, it's sort of as you go. Now, that may be hard with nursing today where they want to schedule a four or six hours and you would accommodate that. What you're basically doing is you want to get it on early when things start to turn purple. It's usually the distal part. It's always the distal part of the flap that starts to turn purple. And then you want to prepare the patient for needing transfusion. Because in my experience, after two or three days, they will 50% of the time need a transfusion. a a unit of blood or two, okay? And after five days, you just stop the leeches. And for whatever reason, whatever is purple will remain purple. And whatever is not purple will not be purple. So it stabilizes. If you do that, you you can get them through this with a good flap. And the parts that turn purple, even when you see them in follow-up, there may be some scabs and stuff that form there because that's typically the case. But oftentimes they're small. The integrity of the flap is quite good. And with just some local wound care in the clinic, you, you follow them through and they heal without problem. Now, if you don't like venous congestion, you don't want to keep them in the hospital for five days, you don't want the potential of having to kind of nurse them through this and follow up, you go to a free flap. That's the argument for a free flap, right? Whatever three to six hours in the hour, whatever your time is, keep them in the hospital, send them on the next day, Say so you don't need blood transfusion, you don't need leeches, you don't have to worry about it. That's the argument for a free flap, which, which is a very good argument, right? So those are the pros and cons of, of each of those and in practice, but I've never, and I've seen a number of these, even when I've had to do leeches you know, on them, I get every patient through it and I've never had a problem once I did this circle flop of getting the wound to heal and solving the problem. I've never had to go to a secondary flop. I've never had to do an amputation and it's never failed. And at the end of the day, what patients and referring docs care about is they want the problem to go away. And so this is a solution to the problem. That's what's most important. It might not always be the most expeditious way to get there. Sometimes it is, maybe not, but it solves the problem. That's way is the most important aspect of this.
1: So, Howie, going off of this uh, discussion of venous congestion, and I know that um, we at least routinely use leeches to solve it, but I know that in the literature, there are there is a lot of reports of using a delay procedure for a reverse oral flap in order to reduce the risk of venous congestion following inset is, um, there have been some recent s- systematic reviews that don't show any difference in complications. Is this something that you would consider using in certain patients? Is it something that you've tried it before in the past and had success with or not?
2: Well, so my partner, Dr. Erwin Detlev, is, you know, done a number of the delays, you know, and I, I, Detlef trained me, and I still look to Dan for advice. I think he's gotten away from the delay. You know, he used to do the delay, put the silicone underneath it, leave the proximal the vein attached, and thinking it would help. But I don't think that his outcomes have all been so good that the delay solves this issue. You know, um, you commit to a second surgery, and then you start to ask the question, you know, again, everything is pros and cons. You make your arguments and do what makes sense. So if you want to do a delay, you do surgery, you wait two or three weeks, you put silicone underneath and you do a secondary surgery, is that really better than just doing the first surgery and maybe using leeches? Again, arguable, right? It depends on on how you want to make your decision as long as it works. But I definitely don't think that it's a solution for avoiding venous congestion in all cases.
0: So kind of taking a step back and you know say we're in the operating room we have the the perfect patient for reverse Searle. um can you walk us through kind of how you approach marking out this flap um, and you know whether you're dopplering your your perforators prior to and and just your your general approach once you're in the OR with these patients
2: yeah i could do it i probably should let whitney do it cuz she's had more success with the flap than i have overall <laughs> as a percentage um but that being said, I'll, I'll go ahead and just because you're asking me um, and Whitney, you can correct me if I'm saying anything wrong. Um, the way we did the landmark, first of all, you want to be five centimeters above the malleolus. OK, so make it six centimeters proximal. You draw a line right proximal to the malleolus and, and you don't want to go below that line because the blood supply is down there. Then you're basically drawing something that, um, I used to draw like a tennis racket, and now I draw more like a, a, a water droplet, so to speak, that's just sort of dropping down, so teardrop shape. You, you bring your lap pad where your pivot point is the five to six centimeters above the ankle, and then you bring your lap pad and, and, and to where the distal part of your wound defect is, and you measure that distance right through your, with your fingers. One hand holding the, the pivot point of the lap pad and one holding the, the, the point of how long the flap has to be. Then you bring that up in the calf. And uh, so let's say your left hand is the pivot point. That's at six centimeters above the malleolus. Your right hand's on the lap pad. You bring it over to the distal part of the wound. You then leave your hand at the pivot point with your left hand on the, um, that six centimeter line. And your right hand, you bring up on the calf and mark that. That's the length of your flap, Right. Then you also draw the width of your flap, right? You measure out the width and then you kind of, you know, draw that on the posterior calf as well. And then you kind of connect the dots and you make it teardrop shape. The teardrop shape becomes really important. You want to make that stem, the teardrop long, because that's going to prevent the pedicle from being exposed when you elevate up the the skin. Okay. Either way, you're almost definitely, not always, but almost definitely going to have to use a skin graft on the calf. So as I say to people, does it really matter if the skin grafts three by two or four by five or six by eight? Probably not, right? But it does matter if you feel like your pedicle is being exposed and you're stressed out about it. So make the teardrop long to kind of cover it. And then what you do, that's your two-dimensional sort of drawing. That's your surface area on the skin. You have a teardrop. But you have a third dimension as with um, just a number of microsurgery cases. The third dimension is the depth. But you have to realize there are different tissue planes, and your surface area, your two-dimensional surface area changes on your depth. So the pedicle of the flap should be at least five centimeters, and I'll go six or eight centimeters wide, because why not? Why, why not just make it wider? And so the fascial defect, and that's the sort of the fascia over the gastroc, that is probably um, rectangular. And let's say you're going to do it at eight centimeters wide. You're now drawing a rectangle that's eight centimeters wide from their pivot point six centimeters above the malleolus, way up the calf, over to where the, the, the start of your flap is, right? So that's the rectangle of the fascia, which is distinct from the teardrop shape of the skin, right? And you have to keep that in mind. And what you do is you make then your cut through the skin, you turn your bovie and you go through the fat, and you'll oftentimes see the lesser saphenous vein there. Um, you don't necessarily see the sural nerve there. Sometimes you pick it up a little bit later just to lend the flap. And then what you do is you go through that tissue. What we typically do then is once you get through the fascia, and this is sort of my, my joke is usually your fat fingers, is you, you cut through the fascia and then you use your fingers in that subfascial plane to dissect and create a space. Then I'll usually cut through one side of that teardrop. And that teardrop's usually about eight centimeters wide, but it can be five centimeters but you cut through the side of it, and if you're not eight centimeters wide with a teardrop shape, you use some skin hooks, lift up the skin medial lateral to that flap, and dissect in a cobblestone depth. What that means is there should be a minimal amount of fat in the dermis, minimal. So you can see the white dermis, and then you see little pieces of fat that look like, cobble, like a cobblestone street, like in, in the Northeast, in, in Boston or different areas of the country, you know, where you'll see cobblestones. And then if you do one side of the flap like that and dissect the skin out, once you get distal and away from the teardrop, just to sort of what, like at the end of the teardrop, I'll make a curvy um incision down to the pivot point. We lift up the skin and then we continue that cobblestone to the rectangle, right? To that eight centimeter wide rectangle in the sub-Q space, leaving cobblestone on the skin. Then what you do is you make a cut in the fascia along the whole lateral part or medial part, whichever side you're on of the leg. And again, use your finger now in that subfascial plane to do your dissection very fast. There's typically a perforator or two, artery and vein that are going to the fascia there, but you've got to take them because they're proximal to the pivot point and they'll get in the way. You can use bobby or your bipolar or clips, whatever you want to do. It's fine. Okay, if you do that, you actually dissect with your finger all the way across to where the other subfascial line is. Okay, you then continue your skin cut. Um, or I should back up at one point there, when you use your finger and you're dissecting that plane, you'll find the serial nerve. And again, you can just clip that bipolar, bobia, whatever it is. Now you have your serial flap with your lesser saphenous vein and you're feeling good. Then you finish your cut on the contralateral side in the skin. You dissect it again in that sub sub plane. Now when you cut through the fascia, remember, you've already freed everything up. The whole flap comes up with you. It's very quick. Okay. It's similar to if you do a retrorectus dissection, if you're a retrorectus person, you want to do that. You can use your finger all the way through except for the inscriptions, right? And so it's similar like that. And so then you make your cut through the fascia, the whole flap comes up. Now what you do is you make a cut through the skin only from your pivot point to wherever your defect is. And you elevate up the skin flaps there again in a cobblestone plane. And now you turn down your flap, you rotate it down into the defect. It should sit without any tension. Your pedicle of your teardrop, your proximal, should then be covering your pedicle and should be make it make it easy for you to sew your skin flaps to that teardrop, right? And so you inset that, usually maybe with some bike rolls, maybe with some interrupted or running nylons. You don't, there's not a lot of pressure on it, but you want to just kind of hold it there. And then to your donor site, you're closing the skin in layers. And then you typically need a skin graft. So you don't, you know, need a drain or anything because you have a skin graft there. And what I'll typically do is put a vac over it because the vac will drain anything out and add compression where that skin graft is, right? Um, And that's it. And then you keep the flap elevated, keep the leg elevated, and then wait for the purple to come, you know? And if it doesn't come, you're high-fiving and you're feeling great. And if it comes, you're all ready for it, right? Um, So, yeah. So anyway, that's how I do the case.
1: Whitney, is that right? That is totally correct. And as someone who's had an 100% success rate with the surgery, I feel like I would know.
2: (laughs) You do know. You've done it Uh, a number of times.
1: Yeah. Um, So... Just you know, I think that that got us all the way through the operating room, and then when we're taking care of these patients on the floor, let's say we are in the lucky situation where the flap doesn't turn purple. How long do you and you' saying like let's let the patient go home. How long do you still let that have them elevate the leg and um, limit weight bearing on that leg or dangling on that leg? um Do you do it for a couple of days, a couple of weeks? Kind of what is your thought process on that
2: um so My voodoo, because it's totally voodoo, is two weeks. It probably doesn't need to be two weeks. You probably, you know, there are people who do dangling protocols. You know, they call them that. I always think that's the funniest word in the world, dangling protocol, if they say that with a straight face. But um, you can do a dangling protocol. But you basically are telling the person if you put your foot down with a dangling protocol, if it turns purple, lift your leg up, right? Don't let it turn purple. Um, My general rule of thumb is just keep it elevated for a couple of weeks. One of the reasons, too, besides just the dangling, is the flap has to sort of scar into place and the wound have to heal. And I don't want them walking and bending their ankle or doing things where they're ripping at the flap and it a hisses from the wound because that's a real problem. You know, you, you've got problem. You're worried about a leg amputation just hang out for a couple of weeks. Let's just let this thing kind of settle down, you know, haste makes waste and uh, just keep it elevated. You're good. You know, avoid problems, be compliant. And that usually is what we need. Then I begin to let them hang it down. And then would probably keep it elevated for another couple of weeks, just till I saw it in clinic was really socked into place and was looking good. And then after that, you're probably four to six weeks out. Now it depends, right? Because weight bearing is really an orthopedic issue, not a plastic surgery issue, right? That's standing and putting weight. So if the bony structures are fine, then go for weight bearing. If the bony structures aren't fine, you may be precluded because of any orthopedic issues that are below. If there's no orthopedic issues below, then have at it. By four to six weeks, have at it, you know. Um, by that point, they've already been letting it hang down. They see what it's like. Um, you tell them not to, you know, when they start to hang it down, don't put sock, a sock over it, you know, let's look at it. You walk it through to make sure it's not turning purple into hissing and then to use common sense. And that seems to work. And uh, they, they seem to do well. And then you dodge the bullet. They keep the leg and you kind of move along.
0: Awesome. That was- a great summary. I'm, uh, I'm really hoping we get uh, a suitable patient and a suitable wound when I'm on service with you next month. So hopefully we get one of these. Thanks for jinxing us, Nick. But yeah, I agree. <laughs> um,
1: Nick, now we are, our... we are 100% getting a, some horrid lower extremity wound now. Three, oh, three
2: yeah. horrible <laughs> things. And it's Nick's going not going to be able to call for <laughs> any of them. He's gonna be going too to be busy to help us.
0: <laughs> um, before we get to our our final, we have kind of one final bonus question for you. But before we get there, I just want to touch on, I saw a couple of recent articles with um, some modification that they've made to the reverse Searle. And I want to see your thoughts on them. One specifically was uh, was a video on, on PRS Go when they were talking about an adipofascial only uh, reverse Searle flap. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, i was wondering if, if you had done one of those and if you think there's any advantage to that.
2: I don't know what they did it for, but absolutely any flap. I've done ALT flaps. What it brings me is like for the dorsal hand wound, I've done free ALT flaps where I only took the fascia. I didn't take skin or any of the fat. so It was super thin. And, uh, but it was vascularized. It's basically a vascularized fat fascia transfer. So yeah, you can do that with any flap, right? You, with any adipocutaneous flap, radial form, whatever, you can always leave the skin behind. I don't know why they were doing it. Because usually if you're doing that, you're gonna to have to either to put a skin graft over that flap, your, your adipofascial flap. You know, and if you are, you kind of don't want a skin graft on a weight bearing area. So that doesn't, that's probably not the reason. You can do it for bulk. There are people who have heel issues and they need bulk over the bone of the calcaneus. And maybe that's why. So it's a little hard to say, I'm sure the authors had good reason for doing it, but absolutely, if you have a good reason for doing it, if you want to share the article with us, that would be great. It's definitely an option.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I think they were, they were looking for something a little bit more low profile. It wasn't on a weight bearing surface. Um, and then they were talking about kind of how it's advantageous, because you can close the donor site primarily. Um, obviously, you still need get skin graft over your your flap then. Um, I just thought it was interesting. And it was a, a well done video. So I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, so. but, you, you can.
2: One way to think about it is you're just moving the defect. Where like one thing about flaps, which is which a little weird to me as a resident now, now it makes sense is Where do you want the defect to be? Because it's on the ankle. Do you want to move it to the calf? What are you talking about? And what you're doing is you're basically leaving the defect on the calf and skin graft, leaving the defect on the ankle, giving a base and then skin grafting over the ankle. So do you want your skin graft on your ankle? Or do you want your skin graft on your calf? It's another way to think about it, right? And there are pros and cons to each and it depends on the patient. The key is understanding the versatility of what you can do and how to do it and how to manage your complications. That to me is the key to being a good surgeon.
1: So um, to to finish off this discussion, because you do give such good and thoughtful advice to us as residents, um, we did want to ask you one totally unrelated but bonus question. But, you know, as someone who has done a has a ton of interest in research and innovation and surgical leadership, what is one or two good pieces of advice you would give to trainees who are interested in having a career in both clinical surgery and, um, a research career. Um, like how do you balance those two?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a, a evolving question for all of us all the time. Right. And, and there's no right answer. I'll give you some guideposts and then, you know, I could do some little bit of deeper dive and it's a bit dependent on what the individual wants. So I would argue, I, I would argue that, research, I would change the word research for academics, and I would define academics as any activity not directly related to clinical care, that's surgical care in our case, which improves our profession of plastic surgery, right? And that's a very broad sweep, but, but that's important, right? Because some of it may be clinical outcomes of what's the best way to do a technique, you know, like a flap seroplap- or what are the variabilities we have to think about with patient prognostic factors or payers or, or things of that nature, right? Like clinical outcomes, health services, research, that sort of academics. There can be the bench to bedside, literally the bench of your innovating, creating products, right? Which is a favorite of mine. Um, that is academics. It can be global, globalization of plastic surgery, right? Let's like say operation small. How do we improve care of plastic surgery around the world? you know, what are the barriers? Is it education? Is it resources? You know, what what are the sorts of things that we're working on? Um, And there's a variety of ways for globalization to sort of work and building infrastructure and and education and um, using technology, right? Using modern technology, which continues to evolve to improve globalization the homogenization of care, to improve care around the world and to share and learn from each other. Because quite frankly, while, you know, in certain countries like the United States, or England or stuff where we're, you know, wealthier countries, you know, we, you know, have resources and, and and training and stuff, but some of the best clinicians are not in our countries and have more experience in countries without resources where they're busier. Quite frankly, I've learned a lot from my international colleagues that have to work in stressful environments. They're better at certain things than I am. So it's an interchange of ideas. So so that's academic. Academic can also be um, building a practice. Uh, interacting with patients, you know, again, that's a technology thing, but but the business of medicine is really important. You know, you you, you can't be a plastic surgeon if you're not making money. So how do we deal with running a practice and, and making money, right, and providing better care? That could be even in cosmetics. So there's, you know, there's a, a number of ways, you know, and there's policy and advocacy and things. And if you look at ASPS, for example, which is the biggest plastic surgery society in the world, and you look at its, its sort of, um, its pillars um, and, and what they call like the sort of the vice presidential lines, that's capturing all of these quote unquote academic activities. So I would encourage anybody to give back to the society, right? And towards each other, to ourselves and to each other by participating in academic activities. Then how you do that, it just depends on your system and where you are. Some people want to volunteer an hour a month. Some want to do an hour a week. Um, And it depends on what your passions are. The ways to do that are to network, to show up, to have conversations, to talk to people um, about what they're doing, to volunteer. And when you do volunteer, to take on a project, be active, right? Complete it. Do the work. Raise your hand, say me, and deliver on that work, right? Those are really, really important things um, to to sort of getting engaged with societies, for example, right? It's simple. It's, It's how do you build relationships? You show up. You know, you, you pay attention, you put away your phone, like with interpersonal relationships, same with societies and things of that nature. So if you want to, with societies, you show up, you are get engaged, you're, you're present, you're ever-present, and you volunteer You take on activities for that society. So that's volunteerism in societies. For ASPS, find activities you may be interested in policy or advocacy, for example find the different, and there's an organizational chart for SPS, find the different committees that serve within that line, volunteer for the committees, show up, do the work and try to get more engaged. And as you start to do that, you may start to work within all the committees within a vice presidential line, and then you apply to be the vice president. Well, you're gonna be really competitive for that position because you've done all the work under that position's line and you understand what the vice president's responsible for. And that's an example of strategy, for example, within ASPS. There are other academic activities, and you know, I'm thinking, you know, I'm looking at, at Whitney with clinical outcomes research, and maybe you want a job in an academic center, or employed, or private practice. In fact, most private practitioners are doing a lot of research in plastic surgery, maybe even more so than academics, right? So you don't always need to go get grant funding and dollars to do this kind of work. You just need passion, uh, you need knowledge, and you need the drive to sort of to do these sort of things. Um, I'm thinking of like Ann Pellet, who's in private practice, and her research team is herself. And she does her research just like we do in academics in the evening when she's done with cases, but she doesn't have a resident cohort. Or, or Whitney, you're working with Greg Greco, right? Who's our ASPS president elect, you know, of, of 2022 to 2023. In private practice, but he's doing academics. He's, he's talking about techniques and how to do mastopexy, improving care, right? Which we can all learn from each other. So, so in those things, not everything has to be this traditional academic, which many of the residents grow up in, right? That's a huge mistake and a misnomer, um, and, and I encourage that because most people aren't in academics, and our field evolves more, the likelihood of evolution is outside of academics and academics, just by numbers, right? Academic is going to be things that require funding and a little bit more complicated projects that may be more multidisciplinary because you need to be more advanced teams and or dollars to do that. That's some, for example, some of the research I do trying to bring technologies forward are going to involve those sort of teams, right? Um, Some of the clinical work, Andrew Pusick's work, just for example, and I'm just, I'm I'm picking some, you know, people who are role models of mine, uh, mentors, uh, Kevin Chung, you know, and there's a litany of really talented colleagues of ours. So not choosing any one person in particular, but they're doing really high quality, you know, outcomes research, tool development, you know, breast cue, things of that nature. Those require more complicated things. Those require um, funding uh, and time to do that, which are you know, a little easier to do in academic centers, but not necessary. Um, Brian Kinney is in private practice in Beverly Hills. Brian's done some really wonderful innovation. Um, uh, Stephen Williams, another individual uh, in technology. So there's a lot of different ways to do it. It's passion, it's time, it's commitment, it's um, networking, and uh it's working together. And and then all those things really depends then on the individual. What do you want to accomplish? What setting? How do you accomplish it? Why do you want to accomplish it? And then beginning to build that sort of ecosystem or structure around you to do it. And that's a little bit more on a one-to-one basis of, of how you do that. Right. So, like a long-winded answer to a simple question. So I apologize, um, you know, for being sucking a little bit of the oxygen out of the room. But I'm I'm happy to answer any other questions or a little bit more specific, or, or field things that people like.
0: You know, we appreciate that so much, especially as someone who is uh, very early on in my training and and kind of thinking about what different practice options look like in the future and ways to get involved. That that's really really good to hear, and, and get your take on that. So thanks so much.
2: Yeah, you're gonna have, you have your own, we all have our own compass, right, Nick? So what's going to drive it for you is going to be different than Whitney and Howie, and we got to. It's got to be sized for Nick, right? And, and it has to fit for what Nick wants. And that's really important. So we can guide you and stuff. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to walk your journey.
1: Well, Howie, I I know you always give such thoughtful sage advice, um, especially when it comes to careers and how you build a balanced career that works for your each each one of us. I think you've been very helpful in trying to give us all unique advice. So we appreciate that. Um, and with that, I'd like to say thank you so much for joining us today on our uh, Flapcast redo um, or Flapcast take two um, and discussing the reverse flap.
2: Well, well, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. And good luck with the project. Super exciting and really valuable. It's really cool, you guys.
1: As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natral is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit matrelsurgeon.com.